Luke chapter 17, verses 7 to 19. Suppose one of you has a servant ploughing or looking after the sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Wouldn't he rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink? After that, you may eat and drink. Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus travelled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. He was going into a village. Ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, Go, show yourselves to the priests. As they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back, praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. He was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to them, to him, sorry, Rise and go, your faith has made you well. And now from James, chapter 5, verses 13 to 20. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you ill? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will rise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Here endeth the book of James, and here beginneth the children's journey to, or the young people's journey, I should say, to Starbucks. Enjoy. A uh, couple of things before we begin. Uh, it is great to have Tanya and Mike back again. Uh, six years, they've been with us as linked missionaries. Uh, I knew Tanya when... She had mo the moment, one, a moment where she began to take God seriously. Is that right, Tanya? Are you, are you here? That's it. I was sort of there on that camp. I want to refer to it in my sermon, if that's okay. 
Um, and we've got to do all we can, of course, to support and pray for them, their work in Spain. Europe, wow, Europe. Not an easy place for the gospel. Uh, two other things to say. Uh, on the back table, you'll see a little note that says, From the Rector. It's not a very cool title. Um, but I'm thinking of using it over time to communicate better between the parish council and the staff and the congregations of St. Philip's. And so you'll see there a little note on the back table. It's basically what I wrote in the, um, the, the email that many of you received on Friday. Uh, but some of you don't receive it or you don't, uh, you don't open it. That's understandable. Uh, but that note's on the back table. And it's particularly about strategic planning, which we talked about at the annual general meeting in order to report to next year's annual general meeting. And there's a little note there about strategic planning. So you'll see that on the back table. Also on the back table is a, effectively a, a note from the Archbishop of Sydney, uh, namely the Archbishop of Sydney, together with the uh, Ethics Committee, Social uh, um, Issues Committee of the Diocese, sat down to think about the abortion bill as it goes to the upper house, and together with all the pain that comes with that very personal issue, understanding much of that pain, there's also some genuine concerns that the Archbishop and the Social Issues Committee have, and so they put together a submission for the Standing Committee of the Legislative Council of the New South Wales Parliament, I think that's all right, the upper house. And uh, that submission's on the back table, and there are several copies of it on the back table that you can peruse, have a look through. The Archbishop has also asked all the rectors of the parishes of the diocese to put together a little petition to make sure that the, uh, that the uh, upper house knows the mind, at least, of many of you. Uh, and so there's a petition there for you to sign, if that's something you'd like to do. Have a look on the back table as you go out. You could take a copy of the submission with you or you could read it here if you're happy with it. You could sign the petition. There's no compulsion to do so, recognising the complexity of this issue. But that's there on the back table as well. Do I need to say anything else, Paul? I do as, as you're bidding. Shall I pray? Let's pray. Father, some of us are happy and so we sing songs of praise to you. Some of us are in trouble and so we pray now. All of us have sinned. Give us insight to know it, humility to confess it, to own it, and faith in your saving love through Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. So this is the last message in the book of James. You'll see in your orders of service the next series, Four Habits for a Healthy Life. But this is the last one in the book of James. Now, you might have thought or you might think that the book of James is all about what God wants you to do and to not do. To not show favoritism, for example, do look after orphans and widows. It's often said that the book of James is the practical book. Growing up, I heard that Paul was into theology, James was into practice, Paul was into thinking, James was into doing. Now, James certainly has a no-nonsense style about him. He's a straight talker, like his brother Jesus. And he's passionate, like the prophets. But James is not a religious manual of do's and don'ts. Rather, it paints pictures or a picture of what the Christian life looks like. And you might remember early on in the series, in James chapter 1, verse 21, James writes that we need to humbly accept the word, the gospel, planted in you, in your heart, which can save you. So he talks about a seed, 
that you humbly accept, so that your heart, therefore, is soil. The seed of the gospel is the heart, in the heart, placed there by a good God to produce life in you, to save you, and to produce the life that God wants over time. That's the way seeds work. And the seed is the word or the gospel. And it's actually quite simple. My kids get it that God made this world and He made you and He loves you and He owns you and despite all the sin and stubbornness and cynicism, Christ died to save me from my sins. He rose again to give me a new life to live. We say that Jesus Christ is Lord and none other. And James says, you believe that, you're in Christ, you have a seed planted within you, the seed of the gospel. Tim Keller on the gospel, he says, we can say with certainty that we are more wicked than we ever dared believe, but more loved and embraced in Christ Jesus than we ever dared hope. There's a seed, the truth and grace. What will it mean then for you and for me? Well, it will mean that all of us need to do business with God. It's time for traction. It's time to take Him seriously. Now, I recognize the testimony of many Christians, at least here in the West, is not, I hated God, I was opposed to Him, and then boom, Damascus Road, He made Himself known to me. That's true for some of you. But rather, for many of us, it's, I knew about God, and then boom, He woke me up. I finally took Him seriously, as words I hear. And I'm pretty sure Tanya Snowden was in that category on that camp all those years ago. And it's what many adults need to do to take God seriously. And not easy to do when you're an adult. There's a whole bunch of pride that comes with being an adult, and I feel it. But adults need to take God seriously, because none of James, in fact, I don't believe any of the Bible will make any true sense to you unless you come to God, unless you take the time and pray something like, God, show me your heart, show me your way, show me your salvation. Sow that seed into my heart. Show me how life works. Show me how to repent. Show me Jesus. And if you do that, especially as an adult, a lot of people will look at you as you take God seriously and they'll say, wow, where did that come from? And the answer for James is, it came from a seed that God planted in you. It's a seed, by the way, like all seeds, that you can't see, not once they're planted. And yet it produces fruit over time. You can't see it. Tom Wright has this great illustration in his book on James. He says, there are some things in life that look odd to someone who doesn't know what's going on. And I think the Christian life looks odd unless somebody doesn't know what's going on on the inside. For example, he writes, imagine watching someone make a musical instrument, like the one I hold here. Imagine somebody watching someone make a musical instrument if you've never heard music in your life. If you've never heard the music in your life, what might you think such an object might possibly be for? Why waste so much time and effort if you've never heard the music? You need to know what the music is to understand the activity of making a violin. Tom Wright says, it's the same with Christianity. You need to know the music. You need to know God to understand why Christian people do the things that they do. We do not do things out of religious sort of duty. I'm a liberated slave of Christ, not a slave to liberation. 
I know that God already knows me and loves me and accepts me. You probably won't understand why, I, why we do the things we do unless you know the music. Now, let's apply this subject to prayer. Our text demands it. If you look at people praying, and you'll see that in a moment's time when Bruce leads us, you'll see people with their heads bowed, you'll see Bruce saying some words, and you'll see people saying amen at the end, and you might hear some words from people in the congregation. What is, what is it? What is going on? Is it just mere words in the air? Hot air? Brain thoughts? Maybe you might think it's just something that sort of comforts people, like mindfulness. Certainly weird in a restaurant when Christians are praying and the waiter steps forward. But you see, there's music in the gospel, I said you can't see. There's music in the gospel that explains the activity, you see. So, in order to put sunlight and water on this seed, to understand the music, you'll need to do five things that James says by way of exhortation to end his letter. You'll need to take seriously your needs and bring them to God. Verse 13. This is on page 6. You'll need to take seriously your illnesses, not just bring them to a doctor. I'll talk about that in a moment. You'll need to take sin seriously, the power of God seriously, and the faith of others seriously. And that's how uh, James ends his epistle. So firstly, you need to take your needs seriously. And you say, I already do. Their needs, I feel them. Well, James says, no, something more. He says, is there anyone among you in trouble? Is that you? Let them pray. It's usually, if anyone is among you in trouble, let them scramble and change the circumstances. No, well, maybe. But here, is anyone in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Is that you? <laughs> let them sing songs of praise. James is saying, look at the circumstances of your life. Um, trouble, happy, somewhere in between. Be genuinely in touch with the stresses and joys of your life. In this way, you're in trouble. Take it so seriously, the trouble, that you pray about it. Because that's real. It's perhaps the realest thing you can do. Maybe you say to yourself, I'm not in trouble. Things are pretty good right now, and therefore I don't need God, you might say. I want to tell you, if you say that, you know not the music. You haven't got the seed planted within you. James says, are you happy? Bring it to God. Let that one sing songs of praise, which is why we sing songs of praise. Are you in a good space right now? James writes, take it so seriously that you worship God in song, from your heart, out of your lips. Doesn't mean you have to be a good singer, by the way. I'm more noted for my enthusiasm than my ability. Again, Timothy Keller, you can't get at the joy in your heart until you get out the joy. There's something about the expression of singing that allows you to access your heart and the seed planted within you. By the way, here at church, we don't aim the music down towards somber like they do in some churches to sort of make everybody sad. And we don't turn the music up to hyper to pretend like we're always happy. We proudly, and I believe biblically, aim it right here, like Anglicans. Not true. Like the psalmists. Like the psalmists. 
because some people walked in this room happy, and we want you to express that joy, but many of you walked into the room sad or in trouble, and we want you to be embraced there in that sadness. Maybe challenged, either way, but you need to be prayed with and affirmed as the psalmists affirm you. And so we aim with our music to make sure that chapter 5, verse 13 makes sense for everyone who walks in the room with an experience, with your needs, joy and lament, happiness and trouble, comfort and challenge. James writes, if you have something amazing, something great in your life right now, instead of saying, wow, that's cool, (laughs) uh, turn it into the worship of the living God, thanks to God, not just thankfulness as a mindfulness activity. That's why James writes in 1 verse 16, don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters, every good and perfect gift is from above. Anyone is happy, let them sing songs of praise. We've got a couple of songs to conclude our service today that you'll see are in, that, in this space. Secondly, take seriously your illnesses. Got an illness right now? Take it seriously. Verse 14, is anyone among you sick? Some of you are. And that's serious and hard. James says, well, let them call the elders of the church, the mature ones of the church, to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And, hear this hope, the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well and the Lord will raise them up. He'll save them, you see. An example you saw in the first reading, uh, ten lepers healed, one saved, because he came back to give thanks to Jesus. You want to be that one person. By the way, verse 15 has got a lot of hope in it. It cannot mean that every single time you pray in faith, a sick person will be made well, because James no doubt knows the reality of death in, his, uh, in the churches. But it's a prayer in the same way that Jesus frames it up, in hope. When you pray, <laughs> know that God is hearing. Know that He can raise them up. What does James say? Is any among you sick? Call the elders of the church. So I want to say to you, give us a call. Right? You can actually call the elders of the church. You know, with a phone. Couldn't do that in the first century. A lot of people don't make the phone call. I don't know why. It's like um, I'm worried that you're too busy or something. I don't know what it is. Uh, It's not just me. It's other staff and other mature people in the church. We'd love to come to your place. James is saying, take the circumstances of your illness so seriously, you can take it to the one person who can handle it, to God, and you do so in community with the mature ones of the church. I love what Abraham Lincoln said. He said, I've been driven many times to my knees by the overwhelming conviction that I had absolutely no other place to go. We need to get on our knees and pray, and pray with others in the church. We need to take all the sort of energy and the power and the fear and the wonder of real life and illness and direct it all to God in prayer. What's the hymn? Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. We think somehow the grumbling will help, but he says, no, don't grumble. Bring it to God in prayer. So if someone is sick, you call the elders to do what? To pray 
to God. It's why mature members of our church will come around and pray with you if you ask for it. But what is this anointing with oil in the name of the Lord? Well, it's clearly a practice of the day. Otherwise, James would have explained it. So it's clearly something they did regularly. They knew what he was talking about. We don't know exactly what he's talking about, and so for thousands of years they've been arguing about this unction. Uh, the commentators that I trust say either what you've got going here is the anointing of oil was medicinal. Uh, in other words, call the elders, the leaders, not only uh, to pray with you, but also to bring something to care for the body. Something to help with the aches and the pains, to soothe soul, of course, but and, and body. Remember when you were a child and perhaps your parents prayed over you, but they also did not neglect to bring the Vicks. Do you remember this? I'm not going to do that to anybody. <laughs> but, you know, you're bringing something with you to help with the body. I don't, you know, in the name of the Lord. In other words, on this reading, we need the prayers and we need the medicine. We are holistic in our approach to sickness. We don't, we go to the doctor and we go to prayer. We don't just need the doctor, like the secularists say, and we don't just need the prayer, like the cults say. Or, alternatively, the oil is brought as a symbol, as in the Old Testament, of setting a person apart for God. We come to pray with you in your illness, but we mark you out as God's for protection and prayer, expecting God to hear our prayer. Now, commentators argue about it. I'm inclined to believe both. I am drawn to the first reading that when I come to you and pray for you, I'm going to bring whatever I can to help you. Here's the point, though. I believe in God, therefore I believe in miracles, and I believe in angels. I believe that praying for a person does something because God hears prayers. And so I pray in faith uh, for prayer and faith. Not always easy to do, especially when you're getting no's or apparent no's. But I trust God. He can make the person well. The Lord will raise them up. You pray in hope. What does all this mean? Well, um, we want to pray for you. <laughs> and um, here at church, you know, ask for it. Um, I'll, we'll come, we'll pray with you. Jenny wants to. <laughs> Desperately. So does Joe Beaumont. Where are you, Joe? I know Joe Beaumont's to pray for you as well. Or many people here do. You just need to ask for it. We can come to your home, bring what we can. We want to take your illnesses seriously. Third, we want to take your sin seriously. James writes, if they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Such is the goodness of God. Therefore, confess your sins to each other. Be open. And pray for each other, be in community, so that you may be healed. Now, other parts of the Bible warn us not to make a strong, necessary link between sin and then a subsequent sickness. Job is one of them, one of the earliest books of the Bible. John chapter 9 is another one. Who, why, why was this man born blind, said Pharisees to Jesus? Was it because he or his parents had sinned? And Jesus goes, neither. Don't make the necessary link. But James, I think, is saying, if you are sick, then you have an opportunity. Take the opportunity to examine your life, your heart. Are you right with God? It's when we're laid low that we have an opportunity to consider not just the body, but the soul. Sickness and sadness and trouble have driven many to God for both suffering as well as sin. In the hymn we're about to sing, Horatio Spafford lost five daughters, 
in the Atlantic Ocean, and as the boat went over the part where his daughters had died, I don't know how you even do that, by the way. I, just, I love singing this song, just to sort of access one man's heart, a man who knew Jesus Christ. But he talks about sorrows like sea billows rolling, but he also says this, he says, my sin, brackets, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, brackets, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh my soul. If you sin, you'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for each other so that you may be healed. James says this because he knows that a human being is holistic. We are psychosomatic beings, which when I was younger, I thought meant you fake it. Doesn't mean that at all. It's two words brought together: suke, your soul, and soma, your body. We are psychosomatic beings. We are both, and one affects the other. That when we're not in a good moral place, it often affects the body. When we sin, we get stress or headaches. When we get worried, we go to the casino to gamble or we drink too much. And James says, get your spiritual life right, even in the illness. Draw near to God and take your sin seriously and confess your sins to one another. An illness can make you say, I want to know the music that makes the violin. I want to know God. And uh, after Bruce has prayed and after we sing Horatio Spafford's famous hymn, I'm actually going to sit you down, give you a chance to confess your sins before God. Now, this passage is saying, do it with each other, but I'm going to give you a chance to confess your sins to God. Fourth, he says, take seriously the power of God. James writes, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah, for example, was a human being, dust, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years, a promise that God had made. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. Take Elijah, for example. I had a mentor of mine who said, I don't believe in the power of prayer. And the moment he said that, I'm like, oh, heresy bell. <laughs> he said, I don't believe in the power of prayer. I believe in the power of God. And therefore, I believe in the power of prayer. Notice the distinction? You see it? See, what are prayers if there's no powerful God? Brain thoughts, zeros, hopes, pains, sure, but without God they are, what do the secularists say with derision? Thoughts and prayers, blurg, nothing, they say. But if there be a real and powerful God who hears your prayers, weak as they are, and can act, then we can truly say, along with James, that the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. On first glance, James appears to be making a simple parallel. Take Elijah, prayed for rain, and it happened. Now, that's pretty, you know, we should pray for X, and it should happen. I don't imagine how a farmer in the drought reads those words. But I think it's more than a simple parallel. I think James is saying, go back to 1 Kings 18 and 19 and recall Israel's history. Remember God's story. Know the music. In that time of Elijah, Israel had sinned. She had been stubborn. She'd run after other gods. She'd run after bars, which hear nothing and do nothing. And Elijah showed them in that moment around a sacrifice that God was alive 
and the light of God caused Israel to repent, James says, think back to that moment. And if you read that moment, Elijah challenged Israel. We read, he went before the people, I'm reading from the text here, I went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? There's that double-minded theme in James. If the Lord is God, then follow Him, take Him seriously. This morning is the, sm- is the morning to do it. But if Baal be God, if the secularists are right, then go ahead, be an Aussie. And he gathered them around a sacrifice, and Elijah simply prayed, answer me, Lord, answer me, so that these people will know that you, Lord, are God, and that you are turning their hearts back again, which is exactly how James will end the book. By alluding to Elijah, James is saying to us, how long will you waver between two opinions? Is God God or not? I think he wants to look at another sacrifice, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Look at the music of God's forgiveness and grace and turn back to God. And if I can put it this way, the reins of God's mercy and grace will come down on your life. Pray, he says, traction with God, take him seriously, sing again, confess your sins, ask God for the things you need. He knows what you need before you ask him. Or as James says, ye have not because he asked not. Fifth and finally, I want you to take the faith of others seriously as well. James writes in verse 9 10, he finishes this way, my brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth, and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. That's how James ends his letter. The assumption here is not about a a, a daughter or a, a, a brother or a sister or a neighbor who's walked away, and we all know hundreds of people like that. But the assumption is, one of you might wander, like Robert Robertson with that great hymn, prone to wander, Lord, we feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Who doesn't feel that, right? We all know it. Invisible God, desire, disappointment, unanswered prayer, institutional hoo-ha, church politics, yada, yada. For whatever reason, many of us feel like it's just too hard, so we wander, James says, from the truth. I don't know why people don't believe that the alternative is also not hard. My experience is, it is. But James says to you and I, he finishes this way, look out for that person. There's a gentleness here, same in Galatians chapter 6, pray for them. They'll decide their moment back in, prompted by God, if at all. You can't control that. But it is serious, and James makes that clear, so we will help when we can. We want for them, the one who wanders, what Robert Robertson prayed for himself, here's my heart, O take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. You have a picture on the bottom of page six, I want to leave you with this image um, as we conclude James. It's a picture of, well, it's a picture of John F. Kennedy Jr. under the Resolute Desk uh, with uh, the President of the United States at his feet, It's a great and beautiful picture of access. Whereas congressmen, diplomats, and lobbyists have limited access to the president, sometimes only for seconds at a time, a son of a father can skip past them all to talk to his dad. Jesus says, you have a father in heaven, not a president in an Oval Office. You have a father in heaven. 
If anyone is in trouble, let them pray. If you're happy, sing songs of praise. You have not because you ask not. You know the God of the universe, not just the president of a country. You know true power, not false power. You know the music. You have access through Christ. You can cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Let's pray. Father, our lives are serious, our needs, our illnesses, our, our sin is real, but you care, and so we cast all our anxieties on you because you care for us, and we believe that now, we believe in you, we believe in miracles, and we believe in angels. Help us to take you seriously and the faith of others seriously, help us to be at prayer, help us to know that we have a Father in heaven who hears us and knows what we need even before we ask for it. Help us to be as this child, the Father in heaven, whom we pray to now for Christ's sake.